All right. I think we are ready to record. How are you, Kelly? I am. Uh, I'm fine. Have you, uh, for our listeners, I suppose, a, a peek into your personal life? Uh, has the move been completed? <laughs> well, the, I moved, but my house is undergoing some work over the next few weeks. So by the time everybody hears this, I'm hoping it'll be done. That would be great. Um, it's kind of a bummer to walk on floors that are literally torn up. So, As yeah. long as all of your cat's toys and your cat's furniture is set, I'm sure that it's fine. They were the priority. All of their needs are being met. Everything is fine. And have you, uh, I know you mentioned last time we talked that you were recovering also from your flu shot. Feeling good now? Yeah, I had my flu shot and my COVID booster at the same time. Mm. which, um, was intense. Um, <laughs> I think that given, you know, more free time to go to these appointments and everything, I probably would have done them spaced out knowing what I know now. Um, it took me about three or four days to feel, I guess, better from the fatigue that it caused. And my arm hurt for almost a week in the arm where I had my COVID booster. The flu shot didn't seem to have the same immediate like pain effect in my arm, but wow, what a, what a wild ride. <laughs> I have to, uh, you probably yell at me, but I've actually never gotten a flu shot. Uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but, uh, just never, never gotten it. And I don't think I've ever gotten the flu either. So, you know, maybe it worked out. <laughs> maybe it worked out to avoid a vaccine and somehow also avoid the illness. The vaccine is supposed to prevent. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. I ate a lot of dirt when I was a kid. And I think that helped. And then maybe more seriously, I just, I've spent most of my life without insurance. So there's that. I, I, I really want you to get your flu shot. <laughs> I want <laughs> everyone right, well, to get a, get a flu shot for the good of everybody. So, well, that's true, huh? Maybe I'm spreading it. Oh my gosh. Well, we're not going to be talking about the flu today, but we are going to be talking about vaccinations. Of course, the hot topic right now is mandatory vaccinations for COVID, not the flu. So let's roll our intro and get right into it. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. So today we will be talking about mandatory vaccinations. And I think the first thing that we should do to start the discussion before we get into the arguments is probably a bit of framing what exactly is meant or what are the various potential meanings of mandatory vaccinations? What does that look like around the world? Right. So there are many different ways that something can be mandated. And I think it has to do primarily with the relationship that a private citizen has with whatever entity it is that would be mandating the vaccine or any other kind of government action. So in this instance, there are plenty of people who are experiencing workplace mandates, um, especially in like the industry I work in, which is healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then there are also uh, what we heard from the president of the US talking about mandatory vaccinations for federal employees. And other countries are also discussing different ways to encourage slash force their citizens to be vaccinated with COVID vaccines and boosters as well. Yeah, I, I, there's definitely the issue of private businesses disallowing customers uh, from coming in, 
And I don't know, I, I don't I don't feel like that debate is quite as interesting as the one that you referenced, which is an actual government mandate. I think that that's, you know, if you're a private, if you own a business, we've pretty much accepted the fact that you have the right to refuse service to anybody. And of course, you know, people not being vaccinated and you've, you've decided that that's a health risk to yourself or your other customers or your employees. Mm, I, there, there's, there's certainly some controversy there, but I think that that's probably encapsulated under the broader controversy of does the government have the right to pass these sorts of restrictions on its citizens? Right. I think that's where it really gets into no longer having a reasonable way to opt out of it when you're talking about the government mandating this sort of action. I can choose not to go to businesses that would require vaccination for entry, but I can't really opt out of my citizenship very easily anyway of a country that has decided that I should mandatorily receive a vaccine. And that's where I think you see the biggest controversy because we're really talking about people basically having no option at that point, whether or not they're going to be vaccinated. And is that a reasonable extension of government power? And Mm -hmm. what is best for people when they're asserting their own rights in contrast to what is best for public health? It's it's the most interesting discussion, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Yeah. So why don't we go over some specific examples, policies that governments around the world are actually passing? And I think that that will probably provide some nice clarity to the arguments as we go through them in the rest of the episode today. The first one, this I I suppose would be roughly organized from least to most restrictive. Mm -hmm. The first one would be a quote unquote passport system. Um, And this has been implemented in Canada, for example. And under this passport system, it's an opt-in system that would allow for businesses to either operate under capacity limits and mask mandates, which is the status quo for most areas, or they have the option of requiring patrons to show proof of vaccination if they want to enter the place of business. I think this policy mirrors a lot of what we're seeing passed by specific states in the United States. And I'm sure that there are other countries around the world that also have a similar more uh, liberal application of these vaccine mandates. Basically, there are permissible ways to be unvaccinated in these situations. Um, And there are, because you don't have to go into those businesses, et cetera. And it also allows businesses to kind of dictate their own terms for their customers. So it's definitely kind of gentle direction from these governments. And it's not nearly as restrictive on individuals or businesses when they're applied like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe slightly more restrictive would be if we were to move to Australia, they have what they call the no jab, no pay system uh, that's currently being debated for medical service workers. And it's based on a system that's already in place for child support payments uh, established, I think, in 2016 for other vaccines, the, the standard litany of vaccines that children have to undergo before entering into school. Uh, The term no jab, no pay refers to child support payments being withheld from families who do not ensure that their children have received those vaccines. And so a a couple of issues with this. One, it's obviously targeted towards more disadvantaged families who rely on that support. If you're not receiving child support payments, then obviously the removal of those doesn't affect you in any way. The other issue is it, it did bring up vaccination rates in people who just hadn't gotten vaccinated for no particular reason, maybe anything ranging from lazy to 
didn't really feel it was necessary, but it didn't have any effect on the actual anti-vaxxers, people that were philosophically or medically opposed to vaccination. So we'll see what moving that system from child support payments for you know children yeah. entering into school and applying it to medical service workers, we'll see what sort of effect that has inside of Australia. And I think a similar policies are being debated, uh, including in the United States, where workers in different government agencies or the medical industry um, are, are being required to get vaccinated now. This brings us some interesting questions about the people who are being targeted for this policy are making decisions that their children have no say in, and their children may be receiving the fallout from those decisions. So it does seem kind of like potentially an inequitable application just in terms of like who has the locus of control within those families themselves. And like you mentioned, this targets families who need financial support. And so the people who have more agency and more money in this country not being forced to do the same sort of action, it just does not, it doesn't seem fair to me personally. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and even, I suppose it, it would be more equitable, but definitely more restrictive if we move to California. California is the first state inside of the United States that has mandated vaccination for anybody um, 12 and older who wants to attend school in person. And uh, Governor Newsom, the governor of California, has also said that he's expecting to have the same requirements for every student from kindergarten through 12th grade uh, coming in early 2022. Yeah, this kind of lines up with increased uh, approvals of uh, vaccines like Pfizer being uh, shown to have no ill effect on people under the age of 12. So signing up children between the ages of 5 and 11 who previously weren't eligible for the first round of vaccines and then being a contingent factor in whether or not they can attend school is also pretty critical. It's kind of consistent with a lot of what I knew from growing up in California myself, which was you had to be vaccinated to register for classes. And I'm sure that there were some exemptions that I wasn't aware of because again, I was a kid and I wasn't making those decisions Mm -hmm. for myself. Mm -hmm. So moving on to our last example of mandatory vaccines, we have places like Italy who are actually fining people. Initially, Italy was fining people for breaking quarantine. You literally had to have a hall pass um, to leave your house, uh, stating the reasons and how long you were going to be gone, etc. when everybody was under lockdown. They've also instituted fines for not wearing masks. And now they're instituting what's called a green pass. And in order to receive a green pass, you have to have either had at least one vaccine dose recovered from the coronavirus or had a negative test in the last 48 hours. And this green pass system is similar to what other countries in Europe have also implemented, including France and Austria, um, Cyprus and Denmark all have similar systems. I would be interested in finding out more about these types of fines that are being imposed by governments upon people, because if the fine is reasonable for someone wealthy to pay, but unreasonable for someone who's less wealthy to pay, how Mm. much compliance are you actually going to be getting out of it? I'd be interested to see if it's like German speeding tickets where they're proportional to your income. That would be pretty (laughs) cool. Italy, if you're not doing that, I suggest you do. (laughs) Right. I think think the standard, at least for the breaking quarantine, went up to a thousand euros 
That's a lot. That's yeah. That was the and they were serious about it. I mean, Italy was definitely one of the countries that was the hardest hit by the pandemic. So you know, they were not messing around. So looking at the actual arguments for whether or not vaccines should be mandated, broadly speaking, since we both agree that the most interesting discussion is whether or not the government would be mandating this uh, upon all of the people that it has control over, is does this line up with the standards of when a government can mandate things? When does the government have the authority to control the actions of private citizens? Mm-hmm. I think that broadly, obviously this is going to change instance to instance. There's no rule book for this, but it's probably broadly accepted that the government is allowed to mandate something when that something poses a threat of harm to others or when that something is necessary for society to function. I think that those would be two pretty good standards for when the government is justified to take away rights or autonomy from its citizens. Absolutely. So I think one of the standards that's probably the most similar to this that I I think maybe not everybody is familiar with is that even in the most quote unquote liberal countries that there are still limits on things like freedom of speech and there are reasonable standards for when those types of freedoms can be limited because of direct harm that can be caused to other people. So in line with that, the pro argument for mandatory vaccination is that your liberty, your freedom to choose not to be vaccinated actively puts other people at risk. Therefore, you no longer should have access to that freedom. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's take a second look through that because I know that individuals on the con side would argue that there is no harm to others. If I don't get vaccinated, that doesn't affect other people who want to be vaccinated. We have seen that even people who don't get sick from COVID can still transmit COVID to other people when they're unvaccinated. So that in and of itself is a pretty big concern for why everybody should have vaccination. We also have a thing called herd immunity. Basically, the more people who are vaccinated, the fewer chances that COVID can spread for one, but also the fewer options it has for mutating into more serious forms like we're seeing with the Delta variant and potential future variants. Yeah, arguably, we could have completely avoided the Delta variant had we reached you know, herd immunity or had more people gotten vaccinated Um earlier on. I mean, I know, I know we'll never be able to prove that one way or another, but there's certainly an argument to be made that that might've been the case. Absolutely. And I think there's also, you know, right off the bat, there's just, there's people who can't be vaccinated. There's people who are either too young or have, or too old, have medical issues. And these people who are not able to be vaccinated are now being put at risk by people who are choosing not to be vaccinated. Right. So in in light of protecting the people who are vulnerable and cannot participate in vaccinations, it is incumbent upon everybody to get vaccinated and people aren't making that choice for themselves. So the government has determined it is best to make that choice for them. Mm -hmm. And even again, another, another argument against this is the idea that, well, people who are unable to get vaccinated aside, if you want to protect yourself, you can get vaccinated. So let's let's put that first group aside for a second. But even with the people who have chosen to get vaccinated, most of the vaccines are coming in at around a 90% efficacy rate, dropping over time, which we'll talk about later. And so 90% effective doesn't mean immune. 
So even if I have chosen to get vaccinated, there's still a chance that, you know, if I'm exposed to an unvaccinated person who is carrying the coronavirus, that I can also get that same coronavirus. However, if you do still get coronavirus, despite being vaccinated, your risk of hospitalization also drops considerably when you've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I true, could, true. I could tell you stories about all the data I see at work about how many people are on ventilators who've been vaccinated and how many haven't been vaccinated. And the numbers are pretty telling. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, may, again, maybe that reinforces the idea that, Hey, if I want to take the risk and I don't want to be vaccinated that I'm actually not posing a risk to other people. It's just a risk that I'm taking on for myself. Um, So is there a threat of harm to others? It seems that at least in certain cases, there is definitely a threat to others. In other cases, there is arguably a threat. So that, that covers our first tenant of when a government can mandate something. Our second tenant would be if it is necessary for society to function and, and, Falling under this category are things like taxation. Certainly nobody's going to die if I don't pay my taxes, um, oh. but society is going to have a hard time functioning. And maybe more extreme examples like the draft. Uh, the draft would be you know, something deemed necessary for society to function. And the draft has been legislated to be constitutional, uh, at least in principle. I take issue with a couple of the things about function in both of those contexts, because does taxation actually lead to the function of our government? <laughs> uh, it carries out actions that we don't necessarily agree with all, right, of, I all suppose of the time. <laughs> I, I, I did say in principle. Um, so oh, that's, sure, def- sure. that's that could be an entirely other episode, the, the things that our tax money goes to. Mm-hmm. So definitely arguments against that. But in, in principle, taxation is necessary for society to function. In, in, in practice, who knows? I think that it definitely draws a straight line with the vaccination point that it is necessary for society to function if you are pro-mandatory vaccinations, because society has had impaired function as a result of the pandemic. And that I think is pretty inarguable. And so a reasonable argument that can be drawn from that is in order for society to reach normal function again, which is like businesses open and can be at full capacity and the economy can return to its regular pace, vaccination would facilitate that. And there is legal precedence for this. Uh, In 1905, one of the more famous cases decided by the Supreme Court was Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where they ruled that uh, the government is allowed to fine non-vaccinated individuals, obviously not COVID. I believe it was measles. Um, So there is a standard here, but at the same time, that precedent has led to a couple of slippery slope argumentations and slippery slope rulings that I think we could objectively say were not great, to put it lightly. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about Buck versus Bell? Yeah. And this is, I believe, a judgment that still is cited as precedent in a lot of current issues, which is astounding to me. But essentially, there was a Supreme Court case in the 1920s where it was decided that it was within the rights of organizations or agencies that had some authority over people to prevent them from having children if they were determined to be, quote unquote, feeble minded. And basically, it was a policy of eugenics, um, Mm -hmm. which was based upon this principle that society could not function if we 
diluted the quality of minds that were being born in this country. It's absolutely abhorrent when you think about the implications for a lot of individual liberty and people being able to have agency over their own bodies, which mm-hmm. is a whole part of this entire discussion with vaccinations, of course, of what kind of control am I reasonably able to have over my own body? Right. This was, this was the state literally forcibly sterilizing individuals who they deemed, you know, didn't have the mental capacity to contribute to society. And this case um, explicitly referenced Jacobson versus Massachusetts in its justification saying, quote, the principles that sustains compulsory vaccination are broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. And um, so this idea of necessary for society to function is dangerous because it doesn't establish a bright line. At what point does limiting the functionality of society justify the government being able to step in and, you know, take away what sort of bodily autonomy from its citizens. Right. It's about not necessarily whether society should or should not impose measures to function. It's about determining what the society actually means when it functions, like what actually is its functional purpose. And to be productive and make sure everybody is safe and secure in their homes. Sure. That's a great function, but it's also saying things like making sure that there are no children born of low IQ is an appropriate state function. And we don't really have control over that when governments are making these decisions outside of the ability for citizens to kind of call that into question. Like when in the United States, once the Supreme court has decided on it, getting it to a point where it can be reversed again is an incredible process that involves taking it through so many different uh, court cases, uh, looking at legislation, running test cases and things like that. So we can't really check the government when it decides that this is what it means when it says we need this for function. Mm -hmm. And the idea of limiting bodily autonomy and setting precedent in that area also has other implications. You know, one of the ones that's going on in the United States right now um, is in Texas regarding abortion law and what states can and cannot do around that, which, if you're interested in that, we'll be talking more in depth in another episode coming out very shortly. But I think for this particular episode, it's it's important to note that, you know, setting precedences like this, is that the plural for precedent? Precedencies? How about setting a precedent. <laughs> setting like a <this>. precedent. <laughs> I'll tried it. I might edit this out. I might not edit this out. Um, Oh my gosh. In our intro episode, I called an adage an adverb. So if you were listening to that, I heard it, but I don't, I'm not good enough with the editing yet to cut it out. So, you know, there's that. I didn't hear it when we recorded. So (laughs) anyway, uh, back to, back to mandatory vaccinations. There are implications in other cases that I think are important to note, even if it seems like this might be a good idea in this particular case uh, in dealing with mandatory COVID vaccinations. To summarize, when a government principally is allowed to mandate something, one way to look at it could be, if the actions you take result in a greater limiting of other people's rights than the initial government restriction has on you, the government is justified in mandating X policy. And you know, realistically, the vaccination is not that big of an imposition. It's free. It could be gotten anywhere. It takes 15 minutes. 
it may be uncomfortable to be vaccinated. It may be inconvenient to be vaccinated, but the trade-off of the inconvenience and discomfort is that fewer people die. So that seems like a pretty reasonable exchange if you're talking about a government standard for when this can be mandated. Mm-hmm. And I know we we just mentioned a few different precedences, but I think an interesting case study that we should look at is is probably the most relevant or the most pertinent. And that's the idea of the vaccination requirements that um, are currently in place for students. So in Idaho, and uh, I chose Idaho because it has the lowest vaccination rates for COVID. Only 47% of the population has at least one shot. The required vaccinations for your child to go to school pre-2005 is diphtheria, tetanus, DTaP, and MMR, which is measles, mumps, rubella. It also requires polio, and it also requires hepatitis B. And if your child was born after 2005, they've added chickenpox and hepatitis A. And I think this is interesting because on a principled level, it shows that there is justification for the state to mandate vaccinations for its population. And we certainly don't see widespread protests against the above-mentioned policy. You see, there's a few people who take exception to the mandatory vaccinations and they choose to do things like homeschool or apply for exemptions or things like that. But the majority of kids that are school aged in Idaho are enrolled in school. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. That's the case across all of the United States is that the objectors are still the minority, even though they're a very vocal minority. Right. So given this particular example, and and again, this is just Idaho, the the same sorts of standards apply for states across the United States. It's hard to justify opposition to a mandatory COVID vaccine, at least on a principled level. In fact, there's probably more justification for it, given the severity of the pandemic versus rubella. So you haven't heard about all those rubella cases that are breaking out everywhere (laughs) all over the place. The whole economy has been shut down because of it. Mm -hmm. So I I guess for, for the opposition side to mandatory vaccinations, the question would come up, all right, is there something unique about the COVID vaccine that would distinguish it from all of these other vaccines? Right. And one of the big things is that the way that this vaccine was developed or these vaccines were developed are kind of an exception to how it's normally done. Mm -hmm. These are, uh, they were done much more quickly than a lot of other vaccines were in development. And there's plenty of, you know, things you can read about why they were quote unquote, okay to go so quickly or whatever. But also this is one of the first times that we've had a big MNRA vaccine come out, which is a new type of vaccine, which also people, you know, it's a new medical thing that's not been around for very long. It has not undergone the same sort of testing that a lot of these other vaccines have undergone. There are questions about whether or not it's safe, whether or not it's actually effective, and what are the long-term implications of taking a vaccine that we we can't test side effects over five years because it hasn't been around for five years. Mm-hmm. And to, to pull this off of the CDC's website, <clears throat> they say, quote, long-term side effects are unlikely. Serious side effects that could cause a long-term health problem are extremely unlikely following any vaccination, including COVID-19 vaccination. Vaccine monitoring has historically shown that side effects generally happen within six weeks of receiving a vaccine dose. For this reason, the FDA required each of the authorized COVID-19 vaccines to be studied for at least two months, eight weeks, after the final dose. Millions of people have received COVID-19 vaccines, and no long-term side effects have been detected. So it's a 
it, at times certain sounding statement and at other times not so certain sounding. They say, you know, historically shown, generally happen, um, unlikely, but they don't say definitely not. Yeah, I think that there's a legitimate skepticism that comes up when people are thinking about what can happen over the long term. And I also think that a lot of the explanation about what this vaccine actually is has been glossed over. I think a lot of the medical authority out there and government authority out there have just kind of done this. It's complicated, trust us, and haven't really explained what this actually consists of when they're talking about an MNRA vaccine. A lot of people don't know what that means when it comes to their DNA. I don't know what that means. Well, (laughs) I don't, I can't explain it myself because I am not a biochemist and I don't think that I should speak as if I was one. Um, although I play one on TV. Um, (laughs) but I think that it's, uh, the way that a lot of things are kind of just prescribed to people both in terms of actual medications and public policy does not really meet people where they are and explain to them what is going on in terms that really are able to be understood by people who are maybe not medical experts, not talking to people like they're stupid, but not talking to people like they're, I think it's, I think people fear patronizing people by overly explaining what this actually is. And when in fact, people are just really hungry to know what the actual truth of the issue is. And we're not really getting it from mm-hmm. anybody. And there's, and there's certainly plenty of questions surrounding the vaccine. So the Johnson and Johnson vaccine being pulled temporarily raises some doubt and it it is back cleared again, but it's hard to say, you know, we had to pull it because we were worried about what it might do to you, but it's okay. Now you can keep taking it. We were wrong. And the Pfizer vaccine, they've recently discovered, starts with a 91% effectiveness rate when after the second dose, but that actually drops to 77% after four months, which is not something that we were told when it was initially released. Uh, Moderna holds strong. So Moderna starts at 93% and only drops 1% after four months, but 54% of Americans at least were vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, now we have the idea that you need to get a booster shot in order to bring the effectiveness back up to that 90 plus percentile. But then, you know, if you're concerned with side effects, maybe these side effects are exacerbated when you have a third shot. And what if you have to get a fourth shot in another four months? I think these are fair questions to be asked. A lot of these questions are really legitimate, also considering the type of information that has come up about COVID in and of itself ever since about March or April of 2020, because every other news organization every other week is publishing a different perspective on how the pandemic will end, when it's going to end, what does the data show us? It's not that bad. It's actually much worse than you thought it was. And nobody really knows what to believe anymore because there's only been conjecture at the front of this discussion. And so I think it's reasonable for everybody to have some skepticism about the veracity of these claims because almost all of the communication that's come out about COVID since COVID started has been all over the place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of that being said, though, to come back to the pro side that the government is justified in mandating a vaccine, if you do a little bit of simple research, so you can search state by state, both the COVID rates, infection rates, 
uh, mortality rates, and then vaccination rates, those things are correlated inversely. So states that have the highest level of vaccination have the lowest level of COVID period. That's sort of undeniable. Also, I know that a lot of people have questions about the FDA as a you know, U.S. agency and also just the U.S. government, but these vaccines have been cleared by global counterparts to the FDA. They've been cleared by the NHS in the U.K. They've been cleared by Health Canada. You know, pretty much every country that has an organization, well, every country does have an organization, and all of them have uniformly said that these vaccines are safe. So unless there's a global conspiracy, cross-border, cross-political party, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's hard to think that all of these people are just trying to lie to us. What if there is a global conspiracy, Josh? <laughs> if there's a global conspiracy, I feel like, you know, getting this vaccine is the least of my worries. All of that being said, there are some legitimate reasons to mistrust the medical system. I saw a tweet, I believe it was. I'm not great on Twitter. By the way, we do have a Twitter. It's at IndubitablyPod. So if you want to keep up to date with our thoughts and news on our releases, you can follow us there. Quick plug. But on Twitter, I saw a tweet by Kate Willett, who is a comedian. And other than that, I'm not really sure who she is, but this tweet I thought was fantastic. So maybe look at the rest of the stuff she's put out. And she said, it is hard to imagine we'd see this level of vaccine hesitance if we had a medical system where people could regularly see and talk to a doctor they trusted for free instead of a situation where in order to avoid going broke, people seek medical advice on the internet. I mean, that's absolutely true. A lot of people are looking for ways to deal with situations that could cost them a ton of money in a way that resolves the problem without costing a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I can speak to many examples I've seen of riding the bus to the hospital when we were able to work in person and people treated the city bus as if it was an ambulance because they didn't want to have to pay for an ambulance. And they're sitting there in like really bad shape, but the, the healthcare industry is so expensive that people are willing to put up with not only physical discomfort and prolonging their symptoms to avoid having to go into medical debt They're also willing to expose other people potentially to those illnesses because they're looking for ways to avoid going into further medical debt. And sometimes that's a requisite part of it. So I probably rode the bus with people who had COVID before we no longer Mm -hmm. got to go to work in person. I'm pretty sure of it. Well, you know, like I I said at the beginning of the episode, half joking, but 90% serious. One of the reasons I have never gotten the flu shot is because I've, I've not been insured for the majority of my life. Uh, So I I definitely sympathize with this sentiment. Yeah, I think that's a common reason that people go without medical care that is non-urgent. Also, not just like finding a DIY to resolve an urgent issue, but learning that preventative care itself is also incredibly expensive and it may prevent further larger costs from coming up, but it is still so expensive that people don't get things like regular checkups or regular vaccinations or other medical treatments that could prevent a lot of big issues from developing. And that's just speaking about a very predatory healthcare system where they charge you like $20 for a Band-Aid when you're mm-hmm. when you're seen by a quote unquote specialist. What do they know? Why do they charge <laughs> me $20 for a Band-Aid? You know, I just, uh, every October I take a Tide Pod 
And oh. I think that's pretty much why I've never gotten the flu. <laughs> cleans, cleans you right out. <laughs> I got that bubbly goodness. All right. So, you know, beyond, beyond just the general alienation of uninsured individuals, I think that there's also a couple of specific demographics that also might have reasons to mistrust the medical system. And also in these demographics, it's where we see the, some of the lowest rates of COVID vaccination. Uh, one of them would be the African-American community. Yeah, this is a really big concern because the for-profit healthcare system and just the actual industry of healthcare altogether has historically treated Black people horribly in the United States and I'm sure in other countries as mm -hmm. well. The amount of uh, disregard for the welfare of Black people seeking care has led to some genuine, legitimate skepticism about whether or not these care providers actually have their best interests at heart. And we can see this borne out in data. Specifically, we can look at the maternal mortality rate for Black people in the United States who are three times as likely to die per the CDC when engaging with the healthcare system. That is a stark statistic, and it goes to some of the sentiments that people feel are common in the healthcare industry towards Black people. Basically, their concerns are not taken as legitimately as white patients. Their pain is disregarded as being less serious than white patients, and it's not being treated on the same level that it is for white patients. And then there's also some of the historical issues that the entire medical academic industry has had when it comes towards treating people of color with respect and dignity. And I cannot do it justice, but if you have access to playing a podcast, which you do because you're listening to this, you should go listen to the series that you're wrong about, which is a wonderful podcast, did about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And that alone is just so appalling when it comes to how people in power treat people who have less power and the intersection of medical care and basic human rights. And it it made me sad for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, all of that is painfully true. And I think that we can look to any demographic of color within the United States and see similar issues. So the Latino community, for example, might have a qualm with being cataloged, especially after the last few years of policy, of federal policy. There was a lot of controversy over revealing their immigration status in the census a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's easy to think that these vaccinations and needing to prove that you've been vaccinated and getting on a spreadsheet somewhere is just another way to identify them. And who knows how that information is going to be used in the future. So certainly there's some legitimate concern there among African-Americans, Latino-Americans, Latino immigrants, and again, just minority demographics across the board. And it's not just based on race. There's also religious exemption has been a big deal when it comes to COVID, starting with churches fighting to be allowed to stay open during the shutdown. Well, not only are people concerned about whether or not they can actually attend churches, but there are also people who have religious concerns about the vaccine, because even though there are no current fetal stem cells in use for the development of vaccines, the original line of stem cells that has been used to develop these vaccines, I do believe were fetal, even though they're, you know, like mm -hmm. 50 years old or something like that. And a lot of religions that have the ideology that 
life begins at conception, take issue to something basically sacred being used to develop healthcare remedies and basically exploiting the life of the unborn. And it's not an ideology I don't think a lot of people share, but enough people share that it is a concern and it's driving a lot of people to seek religious exemption from these vaccines on that basis. Mm -hmm. This was actually a really big deal. I remember when Trump got vaccinated, they brought up that, you know, the vaccination that, that he received was born out of those cultures. A lot of people are asking him, well, how can you be principally consistent with some of your, you know, right-wing philosophies on abortion, et cetera, and accept this vaccination, especially since you, you know, don't think COVID is real anyway. Besides just objections based on demographic or religion, there's the big one is political ideology, right? Do you think that political ideology is a legitimate reason to reject taking the vaccine? I think that there's a case to be made that people should not have to violate what they consider to be their conscience or any of their other beliefs to comply with government expectations. And that can be exercised in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is medical choice. It doesn't have to necessarily be a historical skepticism of the medical industry or a religious reason, but just the idea that the government does not have the right to make this sort of action that violates my rights. Right. And I think that's a strong argument against mandatory vaccinations is you can actually be pro-vaccine. You can believe that the vaccine works and still be anti-mandatory vaccine. These two things are not the same. We can encourage people to get the vaccine. We can explain the science to them. We can tell them it's the right thing to do. But there's a there's a certain line there when you start to say that it's mandatory. Yeah. And I think a lot of people really don't want to have any of their personal decisions whatsoever dictated by the government, even if they're in their own self-interest. And the type of action that is being asked of them by the government when it's a mandate like this can create a lot of frustration and give them something to fight against that they maybe didn't have to fight against if the government didn't make this stance in the first place. Mm -hmm. So especially since the Delta variant has been uncovered or unleashed, 98% of hospitalizations are unvaccinated individuals, which on one hand is certainly an argument for you should get vaccinated, but potentially that's also an argument against making it mandatory, right? Like we're, we are allowed to do stupid things. We're allowed to take risks. So the justification comes, the justification for a mandate comes from the harms that your actions pose to others, not the harms that your actions pose to yourself. And that may be true if we know that everybody who is unvaccinated in the hospital is unvaccinated because it was a choice. Cool for them, I guess. If that's, if they (laughs) look up what an ECMO is and tell me you still want to go without a vaccination and that's, you know, your prerogative. If you're only hurting yourself, then so be it, I guess. Right. I suppose it's sort of like a seatbelt law. Um, My not wearing my seatbelt doesn't hurt anybody. I suppose unless I fly out of my car and hit somebody. But, you you know, it does bring up an interesting thought experiment, too, which is that if 98% of hospitalizations were unvaccinated, what is a large enough number to justify the mandate? So if 
2% of people were vaccinated and still ended up in the hospital, is 2% enough to justify a mandate? Or does it have to be 10%? Or I don't know, where, where, where would you draw that line? This is really interesting because I think a lot of the people who are currently hospitalized, vaccinated or non-vaccinated, are not actually living under mandates. So we're looking at people who more or less voluntarily chose their path. I think that the idea of mandatory vaccinations is coming up right now as a means of catching the last stragglers, essentially, who didn't do this voluntarily. And we're looking at a really small number, probably overall, of people who are actively resisting being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might move us from the more principled argumentation that we've been discussing to perhaps a more practical argument for people that are anti mandates, and that is the backlash argument. So what you're talking about assumes that mandatory vaccination leads to more vaccination, and that's not necessarily the case. When somebody like President Biden in the United States, who is a highly politicized and divisive figure, comes out and says, it is a platform of my administration that we are going to push for mandatory vaccination in X, Y, or Z group, the pushback, the backlash from that, from Republican state and local leadership is extreme. Absolutely. There are legal challenges that are coming up towards this, which I think are very likely going to create a lot of further discussion about what authority the federal government has in the United States to make these decisions. But moreover, what it's doing for personal decisions is that people, instead of getting vaccinated, we're seeing a lot of people leave the jobs that are expecting them to be vaccinated. Now, that's true of a lot of the healthcare industry, which is not federally regulated in terms of employment. But the federal employees who are being mandated to get vaccinations, who don't want to get vaccinations, are leaving those jobs, which could potentially create an issue with certain departments being understaffed and go directly to that question we talked about at the beginning about function. If our government can't function because a third of federal employees who are not vaccinated decide to leave rather than get vaccinated, that calls into a really big question about whether or not this is going to create the effects that it's trying to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if one of your justifications is the reason we have mandatory vaccinations is to increase the number of vaccinations, and it actually does the opposite, that seems to undermine your case uh, for pushing for this kind of policy. So I don't know, maybe it should not be, you know, President Biden or Vice President Harris who are, you know, or any politician who are making statements about vaccinations. Maybe we could just get Beyonce and Kid Rock to come out and say everybody should get vaccinated, then it would be uh, much more effective. I don't know. Please tell me we're going to update your pop culture references. <laughs> Is Kid Rock not uh, popular anymore? Uh, he's popular with some people. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think Beyonce is a pretty good, pretty good pop culture pull, though. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, I'll take I'll take fifty percent. I can live with that. Okay. So, and and not just on a government level, but also among the general population, I think that there's an attitude of just ridiculing people that have hesitancies towards the vaccine. And as we've discussed, you know, throughout this episode, there are some legitimate reasons for why you might be hesitant towards getting this vaccine. And so, you know, telling these people that they're dumb, they're making a stupid decision, like the science is 100%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's not particularly effective, I think, in, in, 
convincing them that they should come into the fold and get vaccinated and help work our way towards the herd immunity that we hear about. If people are already unsure about the safety of something and are critical of the healthcare industry, making them into jokes rather than actually addressing their concerns is definitely going to alienate them rather than get them interested in hearing the full story on all of these vaccines and see whether or not it actually is safe despite their initial concerns. Again, if the goal is to get these people vaccinated, you should be able to put your politics aside and you should be able to put your personal feelings aside and implement whatever the most effective method is possible. Because we've talked about a lot of the direct harms, actual contracting of COVID, the deaths that come from it throughout the episode, but there's a lot of other indirect harms that are undeniable from the pandemic that, you know, any sort of delaying of herd immunity just exacerbates, whether that delaying be on the side of the people who are hesitant or that delay comes from the side of the people who have this holier than thou attitude that push more people into the anti-vaccination camp just because they don't want to deal with your politics or your preaching. Um, You should be able to put that aside if if you actually care about moving towards a solution. Yeah, recently I've heard kind of a reframing of when somebody does something or says something that might be inappropriate or a bad decision or something like that, instead of calling them out, calling them in and not making an example of them or making them feel bad for something, but giving them kind of some grace and patience and kind of explaining why doing it differently might be a better choice. Those are the types of policies that might more effectively address people who are currently vaccine hesitant is to treat them with the dignity and respect that is one of their big concerns about the healthcare industry and about politicians as a whole. I think that we we don't make any friends if we just ridicule them on late night TV or anything like that. And so is it possible to pass a mandate and avoid that kind of ridiculing? Don't Do you think that a mandate almost implicitly would suggest, you know, you're a child, you can't make good decisions for yourself. And so Papa Biden needs to come down and force you to get this vaccine. I think that there might be a way to do it. I think that the way that it's currently been done allows for people to still have some agency over whether or not they're vaccinated. And that's that they opt out of either school or being employed or things like that. I think if you're going to do something, it has to be done universally so that people can't find a loophole, right? The people who have the resources and the money and the tools available to them to build a loophole can't do so. And you have to make it universal and treat everybody as full equals in that equation. Mm. So I think as we come to the end of the discussion here, we've covered a good portion of the arguments on, on both sides, trying to be unbiased as we do so. But at the end of each show, I think that it might be useful if perhaps we sort of drop the veil of objectivity for a for a brief summary and maybe give our thoughts on how we weigh out the arguments that we've discussed throughout the show. So, you know, after this discussion, Kelly, where do you where do you lie? What do you think? Should should COVID vaccinations be mandatory? Yeah, I think they should be. I think there are ways to create a mandatory vaccine and actually implement 
a mandatory vaccination policy in ways that don't create a lot of the harms that a lot of the people who are opposed to mandatory vaccines use to justify their position. I think that there are many requirements the government needs to fill in terms of informing its citizens better and treating its citizens with more respect when it's engaging in this sort of mandatory policy. And I think, like I said, I really would appreciate a policy that is universal and that everybody has to be compliant under so that people can't take exception and then say, oh no, I was fired because I didn't get a vaccine. I'm a victim. Well, if you're required to get a <laughs> vaccine, no matter what your status of employment is, you lose the ability to kind of like complain about it because you may not want to, to remain a nurse and you may quit being a nurse, but you're still going to get vaccinated because it's government policy. So I'm sorry, woman on TikTok. I'm really sorry about that. I just think that you have to, if you're making it a mandatory system, truly make it mandatory and not partially mandatory. Like we've been seeing with current policies. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I think we might be slightly different on this one. I, I hate being told what to do, um, especially by the government, especially by our government that I find to be incompetent and corrupt on so many levels. So principally, I'm anti-mandates just as a rule. I also believe that you should be able to decide what risks you take with your own life, right? What you eat and where you work and do you drive? All these things can put your health or life in danger. But I think it's important to be aware here that you are taking a risk. This is not a conspiracy. This is not fake. Vaccination is almost certainly safe. And it's also important to note that it's not just your own life that you're putting at risk here. In this particular instance, you are also putting other people in danger and negatively affecting the society and the economy around you. So I believe you should decide to get the vaccine yourself, but maybe you shouldn't be forced to. I hope that people who are skeptical listen to you because <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to create the mandatory policy that is in my dream world. Hopefully after this discussion, people are able to make that decision with a bit more information. Feel free to let us know what your decision is. Did you get vaccinated? Did you not get vaccinated? Why didn't you get vaccinated? Did we convince you to get vaccinated? Do we convince you to get unvaccinated? Is that a thing? Oh, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know, but you know, maybe a lot of people are like, damn it, maybe we shouldn't have gotten it. Um, <laughs> anyway, let us know where we're mentioned. I mentioned earlier, we're on Twitter at IndubitablyPod. We are on Facebook at IndubitablyPod to keep it simple. And we would love to hear from you there. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.